Twitter announcement, followed by a statement recorded at home. It's not how you'd ordinarily announce the new leader of Her Majesty's opposition, but then, these are extraordinary times. It is the honour and the privilege of my life to be elected as leader of the Labour Party. It comes at a moment like none other in our lifetime. Coronavirus has brought normal life to a halt. What do we know about the man taking charge? He's supposedly the inspiration for Helen Fielding's Mark Darcy, a handsome lawyer in the Bridget Jones books. At a time like this, what will Sir Keir Starmer's election as the new leader of the Labour Party mean for the country? This is Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the man, the party, the national crisis. 
painted panelling, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. And it's almost as if he's a blank canvas and he doesn't want to pigeonhole him into any particular identity. He doesn't want you to know who he is from his books or his paintings or his garden. He wants to be classless, neutral on politics. But now over the next few weeks, he's going to have to paint over that neutral background and fill in the colour and the detail and tell us who he is. I say this, whether you voted for me or not, I will represent you. I will listen to you. And I will bring our party together. But we have to what do we know about Sakir Starmer, the man? I think the reason he's won really is because people think he's credible and serious and that the voters can imagine him on the steps of number 10. That was always a problem for Jeremy Corbyn and, and for Ed Miliband, actually, that voters couldn't picture them outside that famous door. And Keir Starmer, who's been director of public prosecutions, he's held a very senior public sector job. He does give the impression of authority and gravitas. And he's managed to persuade the left wing of the party that he's part of them, but also to convince the moderates that he's willing to reach out to other people. So he's not so tribal and sectarian as Jeremy Corbyn was. And I think that's why he's won so convincingly. It's really interesting you talk about gravitas. I mean, he's he's sometimes accused of being a bit grey, a bit wooden in his style. Is is it sort of a, a substance thing? I think he's definitely got substance. So he was a campaigning human rights lawyer, famously, supposedly the inspiration for Helen Fielding's Mark Darcy, a handsome lawyer in the Bridget Jones books. And he's got that sort of slightly quiffed hair. But he's also got a grasp of the detail, which he showed repeatedly during the Brexit negotiations and talks and the showdowns in Parliament. He's very forensic in the way he cross-examines his opponents. He's not hugely charismatic or outward-going, but he's got, he's got a seriousness which I think inspires respect. And I think will inspire respect among some voters who aren't of the Labour tribe as well. And have you spoken to him in person? I mean, what's he like on a one-to-one basis? Does he have a slightly easier charm? How would he compare to Boris, for example? He's not, he's, I've spoken to both of them and he's not kind of constantly joking and messing around like Boris Johnson, who, who uses humour as a diversion tactic often, actually. Whenever you ask a serious question, he'll try and bat it away with a joke. Kirstama is much more serious and he can come across as a bit dry and loyally on television and radio. But actually, I think in person, he's more open. He's more personable. He has a sense of warmth about him. But he's not going to be the sort of charismatic showman in the way that Boris Johnson is. But that contrast might serve to his advantage. What did his experience as the shadow Brexit secretary, and you sort of mentioned that a moment ago, but how, how did that show us about how he'll operate? Well, what he did as Shadow Brexit Secretary, he managed to shift the party really quite substantially towards a more pro-referendum position. But he did it step by step by step, very slowly. That can't have been easy. There, you know, the, the leadership was quite entrenched, bef- you know, before he began. Exactly. And he described it at one point as sort of almost like pulling on the rope and gradually, gradually pulling them over a bridge, if you like. It was a very slow and steady. He wasn't confrontational about it, but he did move Corbyn really very significantly. 
But he didn't do it by having big rows and showdowns. He did it by just gently edging things along. I wonder if that's how he'll be as leader. He won't have these big showdowns with the left of the party, but he will kind of change the direction of the party. During the campaign, he, he's already committed to scrapping tuition fees, to nationalising trains and Royal Mail. I mean, is this a permanent shift to the left? Or do you think that was just part of his campaign to win the leadership? One problem he's had is he has made a lot of promises during the campaign in order to keep the left wing of the Labour Party on side. Things like keeping the commitments that Corbyn made to scrap tuition fees and nationalise the railways. And there's a danger that those are going to end up as hostages to fortune. I think, though, the coronavirus pandemic throws everything up in the air so much for all the parties. He will have a chance to recalibrate and say what he really thinks. What do you think he does really think? Well, I think that's the nobody really knows what he really thinks. So he's tried to convince the left that he's one of them, but he's also tried to convince the moderates that he's on their side as well. So he's kind of had his cake and eaten it so far, and he's going to have to choose. And I, I had a text from one uh, moderate MP this morning who said, you know, unity is not the exam question right now, that he needs a clean break with the past. And I think that's right. He's got to now come off the fence. It was very interesting and I thought significant in his acceptance speech that he immediately expressed how important it was to deal with the anti-Semitism scandal. He expressed his apology. So at least on that side, he's going to have a very distinct break with the past. Anti-Semitism has been a stain on our party. I have seen the grief that it's brought to so many Jewish communities. On behalf of the Labour Party, I am sorry. And I will tear out this poison by its roots and judge success by the return of our Jewish members and those who felt that they could no longer support us. He's clearly sort of trying to exercise a bit of social distancing from that bit of the past, but he was part of the, of the shadow cabinet that that was accused of all of that. Do we know anything about his time working with Jeremy Corbyn? Was he trying to distance himself at the time? Was he was he trying to do something about it when it was a problem for the party? Yes, he was, I'm told, arguing within the shadow cabinet for much more action on that. And also he demanded things like the party's evidence to the Equality and Human Rights Commission. He tried to get that published for the shadow cabinet, at least. And he was trying to make sure that the leadership didn't cover it up. I mean, the main criticism you could have of him is that he was there almost throughout the Corbyn years. He did resign briefly from the shadow cabinet in 2016 after the EU referendum, but he went back quite quickly as shadow Brexit secretary. So he is, to some extent, tainted by his association with that. But I think it is, to be fair to him, he was arguing from within the shadow cabinet, particularly on anti-Semitism and on Brexit, for a very different direction. Our mission has to be to restore trust in our party as a force for good and a force for change. This is my pledge to the British people. I will do, my do you think there's something about the current crisis? I mean, he was always the front runner, but is there something about the current crisis that makes people flock to a less risky option? 
I'm not sure, actually. I think after the election result last year, I think the Labour Party just realised that they needed somebody who looked sensible and somebody who looked safe and that the Labour Party at the last election wasn't trusted by the voters, particularly in those red wall seats that fell to the Tory party at the last election. It was seen as unpatriotic and risky. And so I think, in a sense, rather than left or right, the Labour Party, even before this latest crisis, was looking for somebody who seemed safe. So that sort of sturdiness was an advantage. Perhaps they needed somebody who looked prime ministerial, even from opposition. We've just lost four elections in a row. We're failing in our historic purpose. Be in no doubt, I understand the scale of the task, the gravity of the position that we're in. We've got a mountain to climb. Ultimately, he'll have to decide where to position the party politically. How do you think he'll do that? I think that's a really important decision for him and he will send a very clear message by whoever he puts into the shadow cabinet. But you can imagine if it, if you had people like Rachel Reeves, Yvette Cooper, David Lammy, Hilary Benn and alongside people like Jess Phillips and Lisa Nandy in the shadow cabinet, the Labour Party would look really quite different. And Jonathan Ashworth, the shadow health secretary, has done a very good job actually through the coronavirus crisis, not looking sort of partisan and point scoring, but asking sensible, serious questions. And I think it's it's possible for Keir Starmer to signal quite a dramatic change in the Labour Party and also change the public's perceptions of the party if he chooses the shadow cabinet wisely. I never expected to accept the deputy leader of the Labour Party filming on my mobile phone while confined to my house. But we are in extraordinary times and I'm now recovering from coronavirus. And we will hold the government to account when it falls short for the people of this country. To be your deputy leader is a dream come true that I still can't quite believe is real. Will the election of Angela Rayner as his deputy affect his ability to do that? I mean, what do we know about her politics? She sort of seems to have been part of the Corbyn project, but is she wedded to it? She's got this extraordinary background where she left school young, had children very young as a single mother. Her own mother had serious mental health problems and she cared for her when she was growing up. She came through the union movement, but she's not one of the sort of public schoolboy Corbynistas who sort of have the luxury of ideology. She's had a tough life. And she understands the importance of education, of tackling things like antisocial behaviour. I remember interviewing her once and she got in trouble with the Corbynistas because she was too tough on things like antisocial behaviour. Uh, so she's not really? mm, she's not a sort of Corbynista in the mould of Rebecca Long-Bailey, for instance. She's more nuanced. I think she's quite a good balance for Keir Starmer, actually. She's got an emotional intelligence and she's got a ability to connect in a different way with people. If Keir Starmer could come across as some people as a slightly sort of smoothie chops metropolitan London lawyer who moisturises every night, whereas Angela, Angela <laughs> Rayner is a sort of working class northerner. And, and so they're kind of quite a balanced ticket. Well, that's particularly interesting given how well Boris Johnson did in a lot of the north at, at the last election. Do you think between them, 
Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner would have a hope of winning back some of those seats. Well, the main criticism of Keir Starmer during the leadership contest was that he wasn't the right person to win back those seats and that, you know, the party needed a northern leader or somebody who didn't have a London accent, basically. Um, But if you think about Tony Blair or Boris Johnson, actually the right leader can appeal across the board if they have a politics that's aspirational rather than sort of class war. And I think that's the test for him. Rather than his personality, to win back those seats, he's going to have to show that he represents aspiration and patriotism as well as human rights, civil liberties, lawyer politics. That's really interesting. So what they want is aspiration, a sense of hope and a sense of patriotism, which I suppose under under Jeremy Corbyn, there were always question marks when you spoke to people in some of those northern seats. There were always accusations that he wasn't patriotic enough. He wouldn't sing the national anthem. Exactly. And people said in focus groups that they never were quite sure whether he was on his own country's side or whether he was actually you know, almost more sympathetic to Britain's enemies. And I think that's not something that people would feel quite so much about Keir Starmer. He hasn't got that history of foreign policy associations that Jeremy Corbyn had, the long-standing alliances built up over many years since the Cold War, the hostility to NATO and things like that. There's none of that in Keir Starmer's background. So on that front, at least, he can present a more patriotic image to the public. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
Having won a decisive victory, Keir Starmer has begun to define the new opposition in an editorial he wrote for the Sunday Times, setting out the government's failures in the handling of coronavirus. He criticised where they'd got to on testing, planning for a vaccine, protective equipment for frontline workers and coming up with an exit strategy for how the current crisis will be resolved. Getting the balance right is important here. We've got to be constructive, we've got to pull together, um, support the government where it's right to do so, but asking those difficult questions matters. You can see that when the difficult questions were asked on testing, things began to move. Same thing with equipment on the front line. So scrutiny is important here, because if scrutiny points out mistakes that can then be put right, it's achieved a very important thing going forward. But not opposition for opposition's sake. I'm not going to score party political points and I won't demand the impossible. I remember Ian Duncan Smith saying that you had 100 days when you took over as leader to make your mark and seal your reputation in the minds of voters. So it's very hard to do that at a time of national crisis for him to cut through. And I think it's harder for him because Parliament isn't sitting to do that. But he can use video messages, he can use articles, he can use interviews in the media. And people will be listening to him for a few weeks at least. I guess it's all about getting the tone right. It's really hard at a time of national crisis to be just critical of the government. It looks a bit churlish. How does he tread that fine line of still being able to hold them to account? I think that's the hardest challenge for him, actually. And in his article in the Sunday Times, he did kind of tread the line quite well, I thought. So he talked about how Labour needed to be a responsible opposition, but he did highlight the serious mistakes, as he called them, that have been made. And it was quite forensic in how he went through it. So he talked about the problems with testing and the lack of protective equipment for NHS staff. But he also raised this issue of vaccines and how the vaccines would be delivered if one becomes available. So he's setting up a potential problem for the future. And he did have some cut through, I think, with this. He did manage to get the public's attention. And I think the difficult thing is to sound like you're opposing in a way that's not just partisan. It's highlighting genuine problems and errors and also pointing to the ways in which Labour could do things differently itself. Just back to the practicalities of how he establishes a strong opposition at a time like this. Presumably, social distancing means he can't even meet his shadow cabinet in person. I mean, are we expecting Zoom PMQs anytime soon? Well, we don't know yet, uh, I don't think. So Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the Commons, was suggesting that there could be some kind of virtual PMQs. But it's unclear how that would work or, I mean, how would MPs ask questions? Would they just, only the MPs who were listed to ask questions be included? Or would you have sort of 600 faces on the screen all trying to catch the speaker's eye? So it's hard to see in practice how it would work. But you're right, there does need to be some kind of role for Parliament and some kind of scrutiny. I think that's all being discussed at the moment. But certainly for the next few weeks, there's not going to be any Parliament sitting. The crisis really does make it tricky for him because you suddenly have a Tory government launching a huge economic intervention, you know, practically nationalising wages and bits of industry. Where do you position the Labour Party when that's what you're up against? Well, and also the Conservative Party really wrapping itself in the NHS flag, if you like. And the Tories' weak point has been not trusted on the public services, not trusted on the NHS, and being seen as the party of the rich. And this coronavirus 
crisis has allowed Boris Johnson potentially to scotch both of those by, you know, aligning himself so closely with the NHS. You know, the his three-point slogan is, is one of them is save the NHS. Stay at home, save lives, protect the NHS. And that is a central yeah. plank of his message. And then at the same time, they've done this massive injection of cash into businesses, self-employed, employees, protecting wages. Unimaginable. But on the other hand, it depends whether it works, that also creates an opportunity for an opposition. The NHS is definitely more vulnerable because of the last 10 years of cuts. The Conservative government hasn't dealt with the social care crisis, as they promised, which has created a whole other set of problems. In the end, if people are suffering economically, do they blame the government of the day, even if the government of the day tried to do something to help them? You saw after Black Wednesday, the Tories suffered for years. And after the 2008 economic crash, Labour's reputation took a huge hit. A crisis like this creates an opportunity for an opposition leader. And at the moment, nobody is thinking about politics, really. It's all too important for that. But definitely people are looking for an alternative. I don't think it's black and white, you know, that there's no space for the Labour Party. If anything, the territory shifted onto their ground. In a way, does it make it slightly easier for him? He can defer some of the economic battles with with the Corbyn wing of the party, given that's where national economics is now. That's a good point, yes. And everybody's now going to be having to be in favour of tax rises and massive public spending injections. The kind of old left-right battles in the Labour Party on that are obsolete in a way. In a way, though, defining what the Labour Party is for generations to come becomes even more urgent. I mean, I know it's quite early. He's literally just been elected. But at this stage, what do you think he'd want his legacy for the party to be? I assume getting it back to power and being electable again. I think the defining split in the Labour Party really is over its purpose, and that's between those who feel that it's a cause and a campaign and that the purity of opposition, therefore, is preferable, and those who feel that actually the real purpose of any political party is to get into power and that that requires compromise. I suspect Keir Starmer is on the side of those who want power in the end rather than just protest, but we shall have to see. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Rachel Sylvester, a columnist for The Times. You can read more of Rachel's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by James Shield. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you liked what you heard, please do leave us a review. You can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. And if, in these uncertain times, you're looking for the latest information or some expert analysis on COVID-19, then please do subscribe to the daily coronavirus newsletter from The Times. You can sign up for free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash coronavirus. See you tomorrow. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.